Please welcome. Welcome to another episode of Unmet Need, hosted by serial founder, CEO, Jeff Smith. Your number one podcast for healthcare innovation. Jeff and his guests tackle the biggest problems in healthcare and share their experience building successful businesses in medical device, diagnostics, therapeutics, digital health, and so much more. Also, uncovering the hacks of the world's leading healthcare entrepreneurs. This is Unmet Need, hosted by Jeff Smith. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode one of Unmet Need. I'm your host, Jeff Smith, and today's a very special episode, not just because it's the first, but we're joined by a dear friend of mine, a mentor, and somebody I respect very much, Dr. Bruce McCormick. Uh, Dr. McCormick is a neurosurgeon in San Francisco. He's the founder and director of the Neurospine Institute. He started his education at Brown University and attended medical school at Columbia University College of Physicians and Surgery. Dr. Cornick went on to do his internship at Mount Sinai Hospital in general surgery, and then went to NYU Medical Center for his neurological surgery residency. Following that, Dr. McCormick did two fellowships uh, at the University of Florida and the University of New Mexico. And Dr. McCormick was the director of the UCSF Neurospinal Surgery Service and assistant professor, professor of neurosurgery. So as you can see or hear, Dr. McCormick, a uh, very successful person, but it's not so much about his success and accomplishments that I want to talk about today, because the purpose of this episode is to really bring some light and attention to how significant every individual's why, the starting with why. And so because Unmet Need is a podcast where we talk about solving or attempting to solve the biggest problems in healthcare, and our audience is primarily entrepreneurs, executives, investors, and builders. And so as builders, it's one of the things we all talk about. And so in this episode, Dr. McCormick is going to share some of his experience throughout his career and what motivated him to constantly strive and what different things he considered when he made the very deliberate choice to continue to study, continue to sacrifice, and ultimately to help so many patients. So very happy to have Dr. McCormick on the show. Uh, Bruce, we've known each other a long time, so if it's okay, I'll use your first name. Thank you. Uh, pleasure to be here. Yeah, well, you know, for me, starting a, a podcast, this is a, just yet another startup uh, for me, and in, in many ways for us, for the, for the audience, Bruce and I have done several startups together. Uh, one currently is Providence Medical Technology, which is a spinal implant business focused on establishing circumferential cervical fusion as the standard of care for high-risk patients. We've been at this together for, we're in our 12th year. Uh, companies made a lot of progress. We've helped over 10,000 patients, uh, currently involved in a randomized controlled trial to demonstrate superiority and really help realize this mission of becoming the standard of care. But today is not going to be a discussion about Providence specifically. And throughout the course of these episodes, you know, I'll share some of the things that I've learned, insights, mistakes. Um, but because we have Bruce on today, I really want to start with why did you become a doctor? And how did, how did you know that this is what you wanted to do? Well, I, uh, my dad was a dentist. Uh, I was always very good at science and interested in it. 
And when I was at Brown University, I gravitated towards sciences, life sciences. And I thought being going into medicine, initially dentistry, would be a good start. I wasn't sure where it would lead me, but I felt a medical degree would give me a very wide platform in order to do other things. And at what point in your medical training did you gravitate towards general surgery and eventually neurosurgery? Well, I was always interested in the brain. I mean, to me, it seemed the, the greatest organ. I mean, the kidney's great, but the end product is urine. And, and the brain, uh, the end product is thought. And so when I was at Columbia Physicians and Surgeons, I did research on myasthenia. I ran the neurosurgery lab for Bob Solomon, who was the chief resident in neurosurgery. Uh, so I was interested um, in the brain and specifically just neurosciences. And uh, I tried psychiatry. I just found it depressing. And uh, neurosurgery seemed a great field for me because it was a more tangible, tangible approach or hands-on approach to the brain. As a former athlete, that, that appealed to me, the physicality of it. That's great. Two things I want to unpack there because I think they're really interesting. Uh, the first, what did you find depressing about psychiatry? I don't know. I tried it. It, it seemed I was always interested in Freud and read his books. Um, but ultimately, the practice of it um, just didn't appeal to me. I mean, the, the sitting there for an hour talking to someone, I, I just, uh, or listening to them. Uh, I was interested in psychiatry in theory, but the practice of it, um, I... Uh, I didn't find compelling. Yeah, well, it's interesting. You mentioned that neurosurgery is very tactile and you, you can have a direct impact and see what you're trying to accomplish versus what I imagine psychotherapy is like when you really can't see or touch anything. I think that's probably better stated than the way I, I was trying to state no, my, yes, my dispassion with it, yes. Well, then the other thing, and I, I know because we talked about it at length, but you mentioned that you were a college athlete. What, what sport did you participate in? I was a competitive swimmer, which was, uh, you know, fit my personality. I was dogged and a, a good student and uh, did not shy away from work. And competitive swimming is a lot like that. It's uh, a lot of uh, rote, repetitive training, um, which appealed to my nature. That makes sense. I mean, would you say your ability to be, as you, as you say, dogged and just put in the work, uh, does that make you a good fit for medicine or, or is that not necessary? Um, I think it helps. I mean, you, you know, you want a smart doctor, but more important, you want a, a doctor who follows up on everything and, you know, dots the I's, crosses the T's. And in neurosurgery in particular, you need someone who has the capacity to focus for three to four hours without any loss of attention. And, you know, swimming 10,000 meters in a day um, focuses one's attention or it requires someone to be focused to do that. And in that sense, neurosurgery was a good fit for me because I have the capacity to focus. I would agree. I can, you know, just to interject, when we met, 
And for the audience, I was trying to break into the medical device business. I worked at a company called Cardinal Health and was recruited to a, a growing business based in Sunnyvale, California, in the Bay Area called Kaifon. And I had the good fortune of being uh, assigned Dr. McCormick as my customer. And Dr. McCormick was already one of the leading surgeons you know, performing this particular surgery called kyphoplasty. And so it was a hard thing to break into because he really didn't have a lot of use for me, in part because the previous representatives had done a great job and he had just done so many cases. And so I learned firsthand how focused you are and trying to get in that focus, um, really with the whole hope of adding some value so that you know, I could get to know what you needed within the case or uh, some way that as the sales representative, I could help. Um, that, was, that was a problem in, in a good sense. It was a challenge. And if I think about the entrepreneurial journey, really what we're always doing is tackling a problem. And you know, just my belief, but when people say you know, entrepreneurs are born or you're a natural entrepreneur and natural this, I don't know if I believe that necessarily, but I do think there are people out there in the world, many of them, that when they see a problem, they, they kind of can't stop thinking about it. And the challenge of trying to address it, uh, it's exciting, it's a little, it makes them a little nervous, but it's one of these things that just motivates you and drives you to tackle that problem and somehow solve it. And so, if you think about the problems that you saw in neurosurgery, if we fast forward, uh, well, also just real quick, Bruce, for the audience uh, and someone that's not familiar with medicine, how many years of education and training until you were uh, a neurospine surgeon? Well, it's uh, four years of, uh, of medical school at Columbia. There was one year of general surgery. There were six years at uh, NYU, uh, neurosurgery department, and then one year of uh, additional fellowship training in spine surgery. So uh, all in, I think I was about 32 or 33 by the time I was a practicing neurosurgeon. That's, that's impressive. I mean, and you, you, you take those 12 years, and of course, there was four years at Brown, uh, you know, building out your interest in life science. So that's a long journey. And one of the things that I went into the entrepreneurial experience just ignorant of is how long things take. And yeah. if I think about the commitment and the, the dedication to just for that you exhibited to stick it out, it's you knew going into it, it was going to take a long time. It wasn't like a path where you could do it in six. <laughs> no. <laughs> No, that's true. But I, I see, I've seen it in myself. I also, you know, as a father of four boys, I've seen it in my kids. And I also see it um, in, in people earlier in their career. There's this drive and interest to be an expert or to you know, a thought leader and speak at events and, and tell people how they should save money, how they should be a salesperson, how to be a great leader. And my, my, my belief that I hold pretty strongly is, um, you can't really start teaching until you get out there and learn. And, you know, I, I have a lot of admiration for neurosurgery and all, all physicians and specialists that really just keep going. So at 32 years old, there's a lot of delayed gratification where, you know, maybe your, your peers and friends were 
you know, they're five, six years into their career, they're making some money, they're getting married, they're having children. And, you know, I think uh, there's a lesson in that for me, certainly. And it's one of the things I've modeled in working together and learning from you for all these years is, you know, one, half of life is showing up. <laughs> and two, you got to put your head down and do the work. And I think that's, that's an important lesson for all of us to remember. Yeah, well, you know, it wasn't drudgery the whole way. I was a natural student and I enjoyed it. I mean, I didn't, I liked what I was doing. So it never seemed drudgery or it never seemed, you have to enjoy the path, the now, if you will. Well said. Yeah, and that kind of brings me uh, to just a quick topic and then we'll, we'll come back. My why, being completely honest, at, you know, 29 years old for being an entrepreneur it was an event. It was some milestone, an IPO, an acquisition, where it was a very binary outcome. And then when that outcome was achieved, I could enjoy, you know, the, and it's not even just so much about money because I don't have a lot of stuff that I like to buy, but it was like scoring a goal or getting an A or a pat on the back. And then, you know, it's gratifying, but what, you said very eloquently, which I identify with is you, it's not drudgery. If you like the work and you are in the moment and say what I'm doing, number one, it matters. It's consistent with my values, my purpose as you know, a human being and a contributing member of society. And I'm going to do it one day. I'm going to do it tomorrow, but you do it one day at a time and you can actually accomplish important things that you just can't do overnight. And I, I mean, I think that that's an important point though, is that the journey has to be why you're doing it. And yes. or it, it part of, at least part of it. Yeah. All right. Well, so thank you very much for that. So if, if you think about you finished your training and then how did you end up living in San Francisco? Uh, Charlie Wilson, who was a very famous, perhaps the most famous neurosurgeon in the United States, uh, offered me a job at UCSF. Um, by that time, I had uh, established some credentials in spine surgery, um, and I wanted to be part of an academic center. I wanted to be involved in change and, you know, um, be on the leading edge, if you will, of my craft. And so I moved out to California. I uh, joined the faculty. Um, I got a uh, research grant on uh, spinal cord injury, studying NMDA receptors um, at the VA. Uh, and uh, that was back in 1994. Yeah, so that must felt great for Dr. Wilson to recruit you. I mean, for the audience, why did Dr. Wilson become so famous and what was he known for? He was a, probably the most, one of the most prolific neurosurgeons in the United States. Uh, he pioneered uh, the transphenoidal approach for pituitaries. Uh, he ran an academic department um, and probably for 25 years, the primary admitting diagnosis at UCSF Medical Center was brain tumor. Uh, he was that good. 
um, and he created a vast body of literature, started the Brain Tumor Research Group. Uh, he was just a, just a powerful man who created a wealth of research and um, opportunity at the university. And uh, UCSF was the number one training program uh, in neurosurgery in the world. Yeah, wow. Yeah, my experience trying to break into the spine space in the Bay Area, you know, all the surgeons that Dr. Wilson recruited or trained or inspired, you know, they're all over the Bay Area and really the country. And, you know, it's interesting, you know, I think it was uh, Dr. Brian Andrews uh, published a book that he wrote about Dr. Wilson and his impact on him uh, throughout his career. And that's another thing that I think in this process of the, the journey, of, of trying to solve a problem is while you can be very focused on achieving, on achieving a certain goal or tackling a problem along that path, whether it's intentional or unintentional, you know, we touch a lot of people and you create opportunities for others to learn um, that are at a different stage of their career. And uh, you know, I've heard so many great stories about Dr. Wilson and the impact he, he not only made on patients, but on the surgeons that were following his footsteps. It's inspiring. It is. So well, I wanna come back to that real quick though, because you know, here's this legendary neurosurgeon, I believe he was on the cover of Time Magazine one year, and, or some, some national publication. But yet when you decided to do your fellowships, it, I know you have you've been trained for uh, you know, brain tumor and you do a lot of cranial based work. But what was it about spine surgery? Because you could have done anything. Well, you know, Paul Cooper at NYU suggested going into spine because there was a lot of change. There were a lot of new things and developments and he felt with, where there was change, there was opportunity. And I remember he so, told me that. And at the time I was gonna do a brain tumor fellowship at, um, at Johns Hopkins with Harry Brem and I, they accepted me. I was ready to go, to go. And Paul Cooper said I wouldn't do that. And he, you know, outlined X, Y, and Z of why spine would it be a, a better choice. In essence, um, there was so many new technologies being brought to bear in the spine that hadn't been present before. And that for a young, ambitious guy like myself, um, I would be afforded more opportunities in it. And that, you know, from a pattern recognition standpoint, you know, those details are very specific to that time, to surgery. But when I think about spine and why was there so much change and why was there so much opportunity, there was all these new technologies that were being developed and implemented. And that's a pattern I think as entrepreneurs, we all look for. And minimally invasive spine being enabled by fluoroscopic guidance, I think that was, a, that was a catalyst for a lot of innovation. If we fast forward 20 years, so many other enabling technologies have come about that have pushed the field even further and enabled surgeons to you know, either achieve better outcomes, be more efficient, have a smaller footprint on the patient. So you know, that, that wave of enabling technologies and looking for the wave, because it tends to build. And a great more recent example would be what's happening with uh, robotic navigation. 
the navigate navigated surgery has been out for how long? When was the first time you used navigation? Ninety-five. Uh, well, I mean, we've used navigation. It was very primitive, a fluoro screen since you know the late you know early nineties. But in about ninety-four, ninety-five, Medtronic first came out with a. a uh, you know, a na an intraoperative navigation system in the operating room. It was a little clumsy and particularly for spine, and we didn't use that much, but that was kind of my first experience. And for anyone that's not familiar with navigation, you know, what's the value proposition? Why, why is it worth pursuing? Well, I mean, surgery is all about knowing where you are, knowing the anatomy, and a navigation system is a is a way to prevent the surgeon from getting lost and you know mishaps happening so it makes surgery safer uh, smaller footprint on the patient in terms of getting the surgeon where he wants to be if he knows where he is all the time so safer better yeah yeah it's really amazing technology what i love about it as just a, a case study on um uh, what I like to think of is it, I think it was Mike Maples published something about technology ways is that they, when they start in the gathering phase, there's so much promise because conceptually it makes so, it just makes a ton of sense. Right. So why wouldn't you want to know exactly where you are at all times? And then it takes somebody to say, this is a problem we can solve. And so many iterations of navigation systems and they're expensive initially they're limited by, you know, certain technologies that are required to, to make them happen. And as that technology wave in the gathering stage, it starts to build. And there's a lot of times there's this, this thing that's described as the peak. Uh, what was it say? We'll call it peak enthusiasm, but I think I'm messing that up. And that's where all the capital, all the entrepreneurs, all the people that think there's an opportunity to be successful because the, the wave is gathered and it's crested and it's usually then followed by the trough of disillusionment <laughs> because all the investors lost their money or the entrepreneurs, it took way too long and the space thins out a bit. And then there's this next really exciting point where people start building useful applications on top of that technology. And then, it, it, it tends to coincide with when the underlying tech of the solution matures and gets there. And so navigation is, I love it because it's a double wave in that that was a long time coming and only because of navigation could robotic surgery really, I would say now is in the enable is in the gathering stage because most of what surgeons can do with robotic navigation, you know, it's limited. It's not, you know, it's not robots doing the surgery. Um, there are certainly amazing examples with the Da Vinci and the Mako and the Renaissance and but then there's some amazing technologies. But if you fast forward and, you know, we're having this conversation a decade from now, you can imagine there's going to be a lot more useful applications for robotic navigation. And, but again, going back to this theme, four years of undergrad followed by 12 years of training, it takes time. And so the people that are having success with robotics, it, they didn't just get into it. It's a long time coming. And I think that's a recurring theme. And so that bringing it back to the topic of this episode, 
if you're going to spend 15 years of your life trying to take this idea of robotic navigation or even just navigate, you know, practical navigated surgery, uh, you have to be ready for the long haul. And that's going to require a really strong why. Why am I doing this? Why am I going to spend, you know, a chunk of my career, you know, pushing this, this boulder uphill and if I think of some of my failures in entrepreneurial projects that I started, my why wasn't that sound. You know, I wanted to make some, I had an idea for a problem and I wanted to make something, but I really didn't have the amount of conviction it takes uh, to take it the distance and actually solve the problem. So if we could go back. Sometimes, yeah, sometimes you start out trying to solve one problem, you end up solving another. Good point. Yeah. Sounds like a little bit like our experience. Yes. And that's, you know, that's part of the beauty of it. Um, it's a so journey. When you, when you were on your journey, and so you get to UCSF, you've done your spine training, and now you're at this prestigious academic university. What did it feel like? Did you, did you realize that this is it? This is where I, I'm going to be? No, I, I was a little disillusioned in the sense that I'd, uh, I'd always thought that this would be the pinnacle and that would it be it and then I would be satisfied. And I found that I, uh, I saw innovation that wasn't coming out of the university. Most of the innovation in spine was coming from the private sector. And, you know, great ideas, from, you know, doctors not associated with large prestigious universities having great ideas and having a huge impact. And I started to second guess myself and question why I was here. And I was, my interest in spinal surgery, it was mechanical, it was physical, which appealed to me as an athlete. And, uh, you know, I was my research project on spinal cord injury, which just wasn't getting me that excited. And I felt like there were better, better venues in order to make change in medicine. And so I, uh, I decided to leave and I decided I would, you know, perhaps with a little hubris called a neurospine institute because I was still dedica uh, dedicated to the proposition that I wanted to be an agent for change or make something new or be a pathfinder. And when you told your colleagues at UCSF that you were going to leave the university and do your first startup effectively, the Neurospine Institute, it's just you, you've started it from nothing and hang a shingle and compete with this massive institution. You know, what did, what did people say? They said you would fail. And, uh, I, I, you know, you're, you're not going to make it. There are very few surgeons left. And one of the residents, uh, Eldon Eichbaum, said to me, go ahead, try. If you fail, so what? And I was like, yeah, okay. <laughs> and uh, went ahead and did it. And it was, you know, I always tell people when they're starting something new, there'll be a ton of people telling you it won't work or it'll fail. But you believe in yourself. Uh, there's the room at the top and you just go for it. That's great. I love that. And you know, another point is that the, the importance and of having friends and family that can just give you just a little bit of a nudge of encouragement. Uh, you know, it's invaluable. So you get, 
he gets started at Neurospine Institute. And when did you know that, you know, you had a shot and that you would maybe, maybe you could really, you know, build a successful practice? Well, I, I was all hands on deck the first year. I was 100% focused and I would run out to the community and give lectures all over Northern California. I would go up to Eureka, Fresno, uh, Modesto. Uh, I would give talks, meet primary care physicians. Um, and you know, a lot of people just weren't willing to do that to build a practice and, uh, it snowballed from there within a few years, I had an extremely busy practice, you know, almost to the point where I was too much. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because there's a business model angle to that in that, you know, the way I understand it, as you described it in the past is this idea of getting out into the community as a neurosurgeon and saying, I'm here, this is the value I can deliver. I'd like a chance to, to earn your trust as a referring physician. And that wasn't done as often. And, and then so to go out and do that in a competitive market and even go places outside of the city and you know, whether it be up in you know, Sonoma County or, or even further, um, one of the lessons I take away from that is incumbents in any industry or any marketplace, they got there doing it a certain way. And so if you're the new market entrance, entrant and you have likely less resources, less momentum, to try to compete with an incumbent the exact same way, that's playing a game that they're well suited for and they have more resources to play. And so you chose a different business model and in doing that could compete. Yes, I used, I was, I had the ability to make lectures, give talks, because I was familiar with that as an educator and use that not to educate, but more to market my practice, my skills. Uh, it was successful. Yeah. Well, to, to fast forward, so Neurospine Institute, when we met was, and still is, uh, thriving practice, still incredibly busy. And when we met, I happened to have the good fortune of working for a great company that had one of these game-changing technologies. You were an early adopter. Um, do you think evaluating new technologies as a surgeon, does it help you build your practice? Does it help you, um, you know, expand your reach when you're on the forefront of, of new technology? Yes. I mean, adopting new technologies was a way to differentiate myself from the local neurosurgeons in the area. Um, and, you know, where I saw that they could provide better patient outcomes, I was quick to jump on board. Or if the new technology was solving a problem. For example, kyphoplasty, you know, we really had nothing to offer these patients who had compression fractures and except pain medications. And here came along an idea to surgically fix these, which made sense to me immediately. And I jumped in. Yeah, it just goes to that, you know, really the inspiration for this podcast, unmet need. There was, a, there was you, it was hard to deny the unmet need if a person with osteoporotic compression fractures that get worse if they lay in bed and to prescribe bed rest 
and pain medication, you know, that it was the best that was available. But as an entrepreneur, when you see a large population with a very clear clinical problem, it's not difficult to diagnose. That's one of the other things is, is you can, you can point to it and say that patient has a compression fracture. All this pain, you can see them wincing in pain. Their loved ones tell you they can't do what they used to do. And that's unmet need. I mean, it's very clear unmet clinical need. And so then to have a technology that can address it, you know, it's one of the reasons that so many patients have had so much benefit. And as the entrepreneurs, Dr. Riley, and Dr. Mark Riley and Dr. Karen Talmadge, for them to have the foresight. And that was a long journey. I mean, you know, Karen Talmadge had a chance to hear her speak a number of times and she talks about how hard it was just to raise any capital. And one of the checks and balances that we have within healthcare is the institution, whether it be a particular society or it's the publications or peer reviewed journals, they represent often the conservative approach to treating a patient because so much of medicine, as I understand it's based on precedent, what others have done. And in doing so, you get a standard of care, which is important. So that's one end of the, the scale. On the other end of the scale are entrepreneurs that see this unmet need. They have the enthusiasm, maybe the hubris, maybe they just, they can't stop thinking about the problem to go out and tackle it. And I know in our experience, when you're coming up with something that's just differentiated and challenges the status quo, met with a lot of resistance. Because if you're part of the status quo, particularly if you're influential within the, the institution or the incumbent group, you have a motivation to keep it that way. And these disruptors come out with arguably uh, a new or better way of treating a patient. And that's unsettling for some people. But unmet need, I think, as healthcare entrepreneurs, and that, un that unmet need, you know, we're talking about a really exciting patient, you know, care device, uh, kyphoplasty. But unmet need could be a financial unmet need. You know, it could be a healthcare services, like how do we deliver healthcare, like some of the really interesting telemedicine concepts. It could be more on the, you know, plumbing infrastructure side, uh, you know, Bruce and I were talking before this interview about the challenge of covering cases where sales reps are in the surgery and, you know, as technical experts of the, of the products they sell. But in response to something like COVID-19, does the world change when we come out of the shelter in place, social distancing environment and our sales reps, are they going to be able to have the same access to the operating room? And there will likely be an unmet need. And so products that are already in the works, some really exciting technologies that are going to address that unmet need. But I do think, which is why I chose it for the title of this podcast, there has to be an unmet need because it's just a fancy way of saying a problem. And, and once you quantify how big the problem is, uh, you know, that's one of the first steps. And then, one of the lessons that I've learned and, and have observed in other more successful entrepreneurs than me is 
if you're addressing a big problem, so high degree of unmet need, the next thing is what is the solution? What is the underlying technology of your solution? And so if that is something like machine learning, or it's something like gene sequencing, or it's, it revolves on quantum computing, you're building a solution and, and it's the foundation of your solution is growing exponentially in its capabilities. And so that's where some of the most important innovations come from. And, you know, great example, going back to earlier in the call is navigation. You know, the, the components that enable navigation, robotics, you know, they just keep getting more and more powerful uh, and less expensive over time. And so exponential technologies as the core of your solution, it just gives the entrepreneur a big advantage because you know, if your entire solution is built around, you know, Polaroid film <laughs> on a long journey, you, you just might become obsolete along the way. And uh, also last part of the interview, I, I, I told you we would keep it relatively brief, but I uh, appreciate the time and I'm having a lot of fun. So you have this successful practice. You, you've accomplished all these things throughout your career. How did you decide you wanted to start inventing medical devices and founding companies? Well, number one, as a doctor, I'm relatively risk averse for the reasons you all stated that uh, we're, we're, our training is dominated by what's been done in the past, what is safe. So doctors in and of themselves are, I think, very few or inherently entrepreneurial. Just our training is, is against that. And so it's meeting the right person and having a willingness to take risk. And so in terms of meeting the right person, I met you with someone in industry who had a much higher, lower threshold for risk, uh, has some business wherewithal. Um, and um, it was a good combination because I understood the, pr the problems, if you will, in spine surgery and in particular, uh, cervical spine surgery, um, but didn't have the business wherewithal to get things going. So I think understanding your own weaknesses, perhaps partnering, partnering with someone um, who provides alternative strengths, that was a strategy of success for myself. Yeah, and lucky for me. <laughs> all right, so in wrapping up, uh, first of all, Bruce, I really, really enjoyed the conversation. Appreciate you uh, experimenting on this platform for the first time. But I want to try something that hopefully will be uh, will be fun for the listeners, and we're going to call it "Going to the Vault." And we'll we'll end every episode going to the vault. So, the idea with the vault is I want to ask you three questions, and I just whatever the first thing that comes to mind is. Um, so it's just three. Okay. The first one is, what is something that you read throughout the course of your life that had a profound impact on you that you still think about today? Uh, Nietzsche, thus spoke Zarathustra. Excellent. Who in your life has been the in most influential teacher, coach, or mentor? My father. And why? 
unconditional love. Excellent. And then the final thing from your very elevated position in healthcare, what is one problem that you're confronted with on a daily or weekly basis that you can't stop thinking about? Um, you know, one of the challenges of aging is just pain. And a lot of the pain that I focus on is nerve root pain or spinal cord injury pain or the wearing out of the spine. I just feel there's got to be better solutions for that than doping people up on narcotics and better solutions than maybe fusing their discs. Uh, there have to be better solutions out there. Excellent. Well, you heard it here, folks. Nietzsche, his father and we got to figure out pain. All right, well, Bruce, I've really appreciated the time. This is the end of the first episode of Unmet Need. Uh, thanks very much. Thank you for having me, Jeff.